Good morning again, everybody. I wonder, have you ever found yourself being snubbed by someone? Yes, there's a lot of yeses there. That's a shame. Um, by being snubbed, I mean being purposely ignored uh, by someone who doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe they see you coming and they walk on the other side of the street. Um, wonder if you've ever snubbed anyone yourself. Yes. It's common practice. You can do that in a number of ways. Uh, one of the newer ones that we've developed is you can snub someone on social media. So you can unfriend someone or you can block them if you don't want to see what they have to say. It's a virtual snubbing. Uh, I read an article a while ago describing an older version of that kind of thing, which was popular, I think, in Britain, uh, which they used to call cutting or using a cut on someone. So that's when you see someone walking towards you in the street and you deliberately and ostentatiously look away from them so that you don't, you don't acknowledge their presence at all. So you can look up, you can look down, or you can keep staring ahead as if they're not there at all. And that's the cut, and it was supposed to be very humiliating. And so you can imagine that it would be. So you might want to try it next time on someone who's offended you. Maybe not. So that kind of social ostracism, it's often not so much related to personal grievances as it is sometimes to the feeling that we need to express disapproval of someone, of the way that they live or what they do for work or their way of life, uh, which might be unethical or counter to our accepted standards. And there are some people who are kind of permanently cut out of respectable society, even if they're rich or powerful otherwise. Um, and our reading today explores the question of how Jesus related to the outcasts or the cut out of his society, um, those who were not respected and people who were cut out of social interactions with respectable people. And Jesus' relationship to those kinds of people was something that's very distinctive for him. He was known for it and it caused him a lot of trouble along the way. But for us as we read Luke, it, what it does is it illustrates more again of the nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching and teaching about um, and what it means for us to experience the kingdom as Jesus intended. So in this story we've read today, there are a few groups and uh, different characters that we see in this passage. Uh, and in order to understand what's going on, it's good to have a bit of background context about them. So the main figures that Jesus interacts with here are the tax collectors and the Pharisees. So let's think, what's the social and cultural setting in which these characters live that describes who they are? So if you look at Judea in the time of Jesus, it was part of the Roman Empire. And before that, it had been under the rule of the Greek Empire, founded by Alexander the Great. And before that, the Persian Empire. And so the Jewish people had come back to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon hundreds of years ago um, and had been attempting in that time to re-establish a nation under God and to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament covenant. They had the promises from the prophets that if they did that, then they would be blessed and triumphant as a nation. But in, they had actually been constantly instead under the thumb of various world empires during that time. Pagan empires that often prevented them from living the way that they thought that they should. And so the result of that was that they kept trying a number of different approaches in their relationship to God and the world around them to resolve the tension they felt between what they thought was, should happen and what their situation actually was. So some Jewish people were very politically active. They looked for a military solution that would set them free from, as a nation from the Romans. They were rebels, they were revolutionaries, and they wanted to establish the kingdom of God by force. 
Some people, on the other hand, were more or less collaborators. They accepted the reality that they were oppressed and they tried to do the best for themselves as they could under that situation. They tried to keep as much of their religion and their culture as possible under that circumstances without getting into trouble. Some Jewish people moved towards a greater and greater religious intensity. You know, the hope was that if they were really faithful to God and to the law, that God would reward and acknowledge them and bring, by bringing about their freedom and their blessing. So what we often see in the Gospels is Jesus kind of navigating his relationship to these different groups, challenging them, and often infuriating them by the way he behaved. So here we have in this story two groups on the opposite ends of that spectrum. So Jewish tax collectors were essentially collaborators with the Roman government and they were given license to collect taxes for the governor from their fellow Jewish people. And the more tax they collected, the more money that they could make for themselves. So you can imagine they were not very well liked in their society. They were seen not just as traitors to their people, but they were exploiting them they would have been definitely snubbed or cut by most respectable people that they met. Now, it's hard to find a direct analogy to tax collectors in our society. You could make a joke about unpopular professions, but um, there might be some people here who are in those professions, um, so I won't. But maybe um, drug dealers, maybe a similar stigma to them. You know, even, No matter how much money they have, no one respects them. So the Pharisees, however, are on the other end of things. So they were a group who subscribed to a highly rigid and very detailed approach to keeping the law of Moses. And they believed that it needed to be kept as strictly as it could by as many people as possible in Judea. Because they believed that if they kept God's laws well enough, he would keep his promises to them. He would bless them and set them free. Now, we, as Christians, don't tend to be too sympathetic with the Pharisees. They have a bad name because they're kind of presented as the baddies in the Gospels. But they would have been actually quite respected, I think, in their, in their own culture at the time. And we can probably be sympathetic to what they were trying to achieve because essentially they were just trying to obey the Bible in the way that they believed it should be. So they were seen as good, holy, religiously devout people who encouraged others to do the same. And if you go back about 50 years ago in a, or so ago in Australia, that's probably how a lot of people in our country viewed clergy and priests and other religious leaders. You know, That's not really the case anymore, but that was perhaps how they were seen. Uh, and as part of their way of life, the Pharisees were very keen to avoid associating and being contaminated by unclean or unholy people. And not, they didn't want to compromise with pagan nations and with a pagan religion. They wanted to maintain purity. And so... The issue that comes up all the time in the Gospels is that the Pharisees were obviously absolutely outraged with Jesus because while he claimed the status of a religious leader and was very influential with the normal people, he didn't keep the law in the strict way that the Pharisees did. For instance, we saw last time that he didn't keep the Sabbath very strictly. And he encouraged others to be relaxed about it as well, which is a double strike. And... Further, he associated quite freely with people who were unholy, immoral, and who were letting down the rest of their community, so people like the tax collectors. So that's the background to this story. And the story itself is quite simple then. So Jesus one day sees a tax collector named Levi, and he calls him to follow him and be his disciple. And Levi does. I think that's a very quick response on Levi's part. Maybe he was sick of being snubbed 
in the street. He was ready for a change. But for whatever reason, he just leaves his tax collecting booth and follows Jesus. This story is repeated in Matthew, the Gospel, in chapter 9, and many people believe that Levi is the same person as Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And then that day, Levi invites Jesus to a tax collector party at his house, and all the sorts of disreputable people who hang around with tax collectors, they turn up to this party with Jesus too. And that starts a conversation between Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees about what he is actually doing. Why? Does he eat and drink with sinners? And there's a follow-up question. Why do he and his disciples not fast and pray as diligently as the Pharisees do? And of course, they're both designed these questions to suggest that Jesus is in the wrong and the Pharisees are in the right. He needs to justify himself. So firstly, the question, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? He replies to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So Jesus sees himself as a doctor. He's got a mission to heal people. And if you want to do that, you have to go where the sick people are. People who need to be healed. And obviously that includes the tax collectors and the sinners, and not so much the people who are already doing the right thing. I think that those of us who've been Christians for a while, we might be used to the idea that Jesus hung out with sinners and disreputable people, and we might miss out on how radical what he's actually saying here was and is. Um, Jesus is actually having an argument, I think, with the Pharisees about how holiness works. How does God's kingdom work? Because the Pharisees had what I think the standard human idea of holiness is, which is an exclusionary one. So for them... Holiness is a very small space, there's a boundary around it, it's precious. And in order to keep holy and keep holiness going, we need to exclude from that space everything that isn't holy. It's a metaphor that would be used, like it's a cleanliness metaphor. If I want my house to be clean, I need to sweep out the dirt. And if people want to come into my clean house, they need to wipe their feet first so they don't bring in more dirt that's not there. So... In the Pharisees' thinking, the tax collectors, though I'm sure they would have said, they're welcome to come to God, to be forgiven and be accepted. But first, they need to make themselves holy and clean, as the Pharisees were, and then they can come. But that's not how Jesus thought about holiness. For him, holiness is an inclusionary idea. So what he believes is that wherever God's presence goes... It extends the sphere of holiness and it makes people holy. It makes places holy. That's why he doesn't use the cleaning metaphor. He uses the healing metaphor. You don't have to make yourself healthy before you go to the doctor. Can you imagine? You'd never go. Um, Wherever the doctor goes, he takes healing with him. So Jesus doesn't wait for the tax collectors to become holy and come to him. He goes to the tax collectors to eat with them and to make them holy. He makes their house clean, in a sense. And that's how the kingdom of God works, it seems. The kingdom appears wherever Jesus is accepted into it. And I've said that I think this is not a natural way for human beings to think about holiness. You know, we, do, we live in a world of exclusions, the social exclusions. We're used to snubbing people. We're used to cutting them off. We're used to blocking people. We're used to respectability and maintaining who's in and who's out. We all do this. That's why everyone laughed when I said, you know, have we ever snubbed anyone? Yes. Um, 
That's why even 2,000 years later, Christian people often still have a lot of trouble accepting and relating to people who are seen as sinful and unacceptable because it's the natural human thing to do. And there are, unfortunately, entire denominations and churches dedicated to separating Christians from an unholy world, creating a holy space. But this story explains that Jesus actually has no such problem because wherever he goes, he takes holiness with him. The kingdom goes with him. So that's the first question. Why did Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? To make them holy and to bring the kingdom to them. Okay, the second question that they ask then, the Pharisees, is why do Jesus and his disciples go to parties? And why do they eat and drink all the time instead of doing religious disciplines such as fasting and praying like the Pharisees do all the time? From the Pharisees' point of view, he's saying, well, Jesus, you're a spiritual leader. Why don't you encourage people to be dedicated to your religion? Do you not care about what God wants? Well, Jesus answers this similarly. He says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from him. In those days, they will fast. So it's in a wedding analogy. He says, you know, if you're the guest at someone's wedding, particularly if you're in the bridal party, it would be considered inappropriate and even rude to refuse to eat and celebrate. I'm sorry, I'm on a diet. I won't eat that meal. You know, I'm trying to be good. Or, you know, all that kind of thing. There's a time for everything including a time for fasting, but also a time for celebration. And Jesus' point is that his disciples will certainly, yeah, there'll be, there'll be some time when they're going to fast, they're going to spend time in prayer, but he's nothing against that. But right now is not the time that they're going to do that. That's for when he's gone. And I think the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees here is whether they can see that the kingdom of God is present or not. So Jesus is saying, I think with this analogy, that You know, spiritual discipline, prayer, fasting, and these rigorous observances are the kind of things that God's people do in times when there is an absence of God's kingdom in his presence in their lives. We do these things at the time when God's kingdom is far away from our experience. And I think the Pharisees would actually agree with that, maybe in theory. Um, The reason that they were so keen on fasting and all the other religious acts of the law was because they believed they were waiting for God's kingdom to come and they wanted to prepare the way. You know, you fast and pray and put on a serious face because you're sad that God is far away. It's time to repent. But Jesus says to them, yeah, but I'm here now. This is it. I'm here. That's why his disciples are celebrating. I say that the Pharisees agree in theory. I think in practice they probably would have behaved and thought as though prayer and fasting and all those things being done rigorously was a good thing in and of itself and a sign that the kingdom of God was present. You know, the more God is present, the more serious people are going to be about their religion, the more they're going to get into it. And even when the kingdom came, I reckon they would still have been strictly keeping the law and being very serious about it. And that's why perhaps they were unable to see that the kingdom of God was right in front of them in Jesus. The Messiah was here. That was what they were waiting for. And the fact that tax collectors and sinners were coming to God was a sign that he was here. Um, But they forgot or they didn't understand what that would look like. And to them it looked like a compromise with things, a compromise with sin, a compromise with unbelief. But it wasn't. It's a celebration with sinners being made whole by Jesus. That's the whole point of the kingdom. If you can't celebrate then, when can you celebrate? So Jesus finishes 
his section then with this parable then to tell them, this is what's happening. You need to get on board. There's something new happening about patching garments and putting wine on wine skin, into, into wineskins. So it's a parable about change and about transition and understanding the kingdom. So as he says, if you try to patch an old piece of clothing with, with part of a new one, you'll just ruin the new one by cutting a hole in it and it won't match the old one anyway. And old, old wineskins would have been brittle and the new wine that puts in them will burst them out because it will expand as it, as it uh, ferments. And with these images, the contrast he's making is between the old mindset of the Pharisees and the new way of Jesus' followers. He's saying they're not really compatible. You need to choose. So what he's bringing them, he's saying, it's not just a patch on their old religion, get more serious, do something new, but it's a new experience of the kingdom of God. If, they, if he tried to fit it into their old ways, it wouldn't work. It would just burst them open. And they obviously think the old ways are better anyway. That's why he says, you know, if, you've ha- if you drink old wine, you don't prefer new wine. You know, you get a taste for it. So in that sense, it's a sad story, you know, for the Pharisees. You know, imagine waiting for hundreds of years for something to happen and dedicating your entire life and, dedica- and your effort to seeing it happen. And then when it does happen in front of you, you say, no, I don't like this. That's what happened. Uh, that's what the Pharisees did. And so I think the application that the disciples of Jesus and the Pharisees were meant to take away from these events is that the kingdom of God was really there with them in Jesus and they needed to accept it. It's a new thing. They might need to change. And so the tax collectors and sinners were able to see it maybe more clearly than those who should have known what was coming. For us, I'd like to apply this gospel story today just to our understanding of what we think holiness is. What it, and I think also, what should it feel like to be a disciple of Jesus and part of a community of Christians? One of the tensions that we have, I think, in the church in this age is that we live in the time that's been called the now and not yet of the kingdom. So yes, the kingdom of God has come into the world with Jesus in a new way. It's available to us now. But we don't yet see it in fullness or it's not completely visible in the world. So as we go on as followers of Jesus, we probably will find ourselves swinging between the Pharisees and the tax collector's experience. You know, I think there is certainly a place in our faith for seriousness, you know, for discipline, self-control, and, you know, being careful about holiness that's being concerned about the state of our hearts and to be pure and ready for God. And as I said, I think that's most important and appropriate when we're aware or we're trying to remember the extent to which the kingdom of God is absent in our lives, in our world. And we feel sorrow for sin and the brokenness of the world around us, yes. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. We're asking, we can't always see it. And so Lent, the season leading up to Easter that we're in, it's a special time when this kind of attitude we think is appropriate. But Christians, I think in the end, we're not supposed to be like the Pharisees. It's not the end goal. We shouldn't be separated from the rest of the community. We, shouldn't be spend, we should spend time with people that Jesus liked and that spent, Jesus spent time with. Because real holiness, inclusive holiness, is where Jesus is. It's where the kingdom is. And the actual presence of the kingdom of God... It's not, a, it's not a serious, sombre experience. It is an experience of celebration, of joy, happiness, cheerful enjoyment of God's blessings. And the nearer we are to Jesus, I think the more, most of the time, the more happy and festive we should be. I think there's always more room for that kind of enjoyment of our life with Jesus. 
you know, the law and the purity of life and the Pharisees' way. It's only just the beginning or the preparation for that. You know, when the bri- and when the bridegroom is with us, when we're at the party, we don't need that anymore. Um, there is a temptation for us to become Pharisees, to be legalistic, to be sombre, to be rigid and judgmental, because that signals to us and to other people that we're serious about God, like the Pharisees did. But I think in one sense, I've got to say, I don't think God is actually ultimately very serious. No, that sounds a bit scandalous, but I don't think God is a very somber God. God is the God of joy, of love, of peace and happiness. Um, you may have heard of the Christian writer C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Narnia stories. Um, and in one of Lewis's other books called The Screwtape Letters, he wrote a kind of satire about a senior devil writing letters to a junior devil, encouraging him to how to tempt a Christian man in his life. So at one point there, Screwtape complains uh, about the fact that God is such a God of enjoyment and pleasure, and it makes it really hard for demons to tempt people away from Jesus in the end because they have to tempt them towards things that are going to make them less happy, that are going to make their lives more miserable. Um, And God actually says, oh, God has given them so many things to enjoy. God actually seems pretty fun. So if he says, he writes to um, Wormwood, his his colleague of God, he's a hedonist at heart. All these fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. All like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there's pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I venture to say that a good sign that we're drawing closer to Jesus and learning more about him is that we're able to spend more time celebrating and enjoying a sense of joy and relaxation in life that the tax collectors experienced and the sinners did when they sat and ate and drank with Jesus. It should feel good to be with Jesus and to have him over as for a party at our house. He has new wine to bring, but you know, it's ready, to, ready for us to drink it. So let's look for that. He's encouraging us to embrace his joy. I'm going to pray now, and then uh, I think Sandra's going to lead us in a time of prayer, asking him to bring the kingdom. Thank you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a God of joy. And that we, you call us to the celebration of the kingdom. We pray that we would always see that as our goal and that you would draw us on with um, the enjoyment of your many blessings. When we do need to be serious, when we do need to fast and repent, please convict us of our sin and then draw us on to, to a new experience of closeness to you. I pray that all of us would be here celebrating your coming again. So we pray all this in your name. Amen.